Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, sign up for our free newsletter, our five best stories each week, straight into your inbox. And by the way, send the link to friends. And today, we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do uh, correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And, and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986, United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. A rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's take bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong. They're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months, and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here, and our friends in L.A. think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here Take they go. Away, lift off. Amazing. And the fan is up, and there they go, John. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records. 
records, the Cleveland home of the home of the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. The All-American City. Now, typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the Balloon Fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of Northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered, apparently from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're at, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and... It's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release, with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down, and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up, and uh, the balloons took the watch, and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say, if anybody finds Mary Allen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job, as always, on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of a musician and a heck of a guitar player. This is the story of Eddie Van Halen, his immigration to this great country, and the beginning of his musical career. Here's Jesse with the story. Eddie Van Halen is one of the most famous and talented guitar players of all time. His sound is the epitome of 1980s rock and roll. The band, named after himself, sold so many records and went through so many lead singers over the years that they basically lost track of the official worldwide album sales information somewhere along the way, upwards of 100 million worldwide. The band formed in Pasadena, California, 1972. While the sound of Van Halen is uniquely American, the story of Eddie Van Halen begins in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Born in 1955 to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother, my father uh, was a professional musician, uh, classically trained on clarinet and saxophone, and he traveled the world making music, and he met my mother in Indonesia. So here she is stuck at home with Alex and I, and uh, uh, my father's out trying to get gigs, uh, which kept him from home uh, at weeks at a, for weeks at a time. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, with the big band era and everything coming kind of to a, to a close, he said to my mom, let's uh, pack up the kids and the piano and move to Beverly. Hills, that is. Swimming pools and movie stars. So little Eddie Van Halen, his brother Alex, mom and musician dad made their break for America, and they brought the family piano with them. We came to America uh, on, on a boat, nine days on the boat, and um, uh, he, he, he performed on the boat with the band, and uh, that was our ticket over here. And uh, one day he comes up to Alex and I, and he goes, so why don't you guys play piano during the intermission? So we ended up performing also on the boat, uh, which uh, gave, showed us the, uh, the quirks of, uh, of being a performer, uh, or the, the pluses of it, because the, the next night we're at the captain's table eating dinner. <laughs> so we, we found out at an, at an early age, you know, what being on stage meant. While little Eddie was quickly learning the perks of being a musician, he would also soon learn about the struggles of being a traveling troubadour. When we finally arrived in Pasadena, California, it was rough. Uh, my father, you know, a classically trained musician, uh, had to walk three miles uh, to go wash dishes. He was a janitor at Masonic Temple and Pacific Telephone. We lived in one room, but we slept in one bed in a house with two other families. So it, it was rough going. Somewhere my mom had a, a sense that we were gonna follow in my father's footsteps. And and knowing that in the back of her head, she insisted that we start being classically trained on piano. While young Edward Van Halen and his brother Alex continued to be trained on classical piano, their mother would place them into piano competitions. You practice one piece of music all year and the funny thing is, I never learned how to read music. And uh, I fooled the teacher. I was just blessed with good ears. I'd, w I'd watch his fingers and, and emulate what he did. You know, He didn't find out until much later that I couldn't read. Uh, the, these piano contests, uh, actually, both Alex and I won three years in a row. I think I won first prize three years in a row. And Al won first prize, second prize, whatever. But we, we always won. And... Uh, it's kind of like in phases where you go in and you play and then you go, you wait an hour to see if your name gets whittled down. I had no idea. It was like 5,000 kids. 
Okay, then it'll go down to 2,000, and you see if your name is still on the list. And then it'll go down to 100 people, and then 10, and then 5. And we're going, Alex and I are both going, come on, let's, let's just go home. We're not going to make it, you know? And my dad, my dad was always going to say, no, 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 wait, 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 check it out. And well, there it was. We were in the top five. And then uh, we ended up winning. Eddie and his brother dominated the piano competitions roughly from ages 9 to 11. It was around this time that the Van Halen brothers discovered rock and roll. We discovered the Beatles and Dave Clark Five. And of course, like any kid, we wanted the rock and roll. I quit uh, piano lessons and the contest circuit, so to speak, and said, I want to get myself a drum kit because I like uh, a song glad all over boom, 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 you know, by Dave Clark Five. And I wanted to play drums, so I got a paper out, bought a St. George drum kit for 125 bucks. And my mom somehow had convinced my brother to still do something musically respectable, which is take Linko guitar lessons. One day, while young Eddie was returning from his paper route, he found his brother Alex pounding away on the drums that he had bought with his own money. He owed me a bit in the beginning, you know. And then finally I just said, okay, he's just better than I am. So... I never wanted to play guitar, but I said, okay, go ahead, take my drums, I'll play your damn guitar. While classically trained on the piano, young Eddie had no idea how to play the guitar. So, he taught himself. I just, uh, instead of reading a book, I wrote my own, so to speak. Um, uh, I'd say that 90% of the things that I do on guitar, if I had taken lessons and learned by the book, uh, I would not play it all the way I do. As a matter of fact... Because of the things that I created uh, technique-wise and whatever the way I play, they had to reinvent a whole new way to write music. Because uh, they could not explain uh, with regular notes what I was doing with this hand. So they had to create a whole new thing called tablature. While tablature's been around since the 1300s, Eddie absolutely revolutionized the way people heard and played the guitar. And while he didn't exactly invent two-hand tapping on the guitar's fretboard, which sounds like this, he most definitely brought the technique mainstream. The Van Halen brothers formed their first band called the Broken Combs in 64. As they progressed and gained in popularity, they started to play backyard parties and changed the name to the Trojan Rubber Company. In 1972, they formed another band called Genesis. They initially rented out a sound system from David Lee Roth, but decided to save money by letting him join the band as the lead vocalist. The band later changed its name to Mammoth when they discovered that the name Genesis had already been taken by Phil Collins. In 1974, Mammoth officially changed its name to Van Halen. In mid-77, Mo Austin and Ted Templeton of Warner Brothers Records saw Van Halen perform at the Starwood. Though the audience was small, the two were so impressed that within a week, they offered the band a recording contract. Upon its release, the self-titled album Van Halen reached number 19 on the Billboard Pop Music Charts, one of rock's most commercially successful debuts. The sounds on that record were... A lot of years of experimentation and tearing apart guitars and opening up amplifiers and getting electrocuted. By the time the first record came out, we had worked so hard to make that record, to get to that point. Uh, don't forget, we, uh, being a rock and roll band in 1977, 78, uh, it's kind of what it's like today, uh, except back then it was punk and disco. I hate to bring up Spinal Tap, but, you know, but uh, you know, while they're going to 11, at the, at the time, I was already going to 15. 
The album included songs now regarded as Van Halen classics like Running with the Devil and the guitar solo Eruption, which showcases Eddie's use of finger tapping. The main reason why I squeeze so many, you know, you call them tricks, call them whatever techniques out of a guitar, was out of necessity because I couldn't afford the pedals. So I did everything I could to get sounds out of, out of the guitar with my fingers. The band would go on to record several albums only to unceremoniously swap out lead singer David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar in a big bag of drama from 1985 that we're not going to rip into in this report. Aside from this clip from the movie Airheads. What side did you take in the big David Lee Roth Van Halen split? What do you mean? What kind of question is that? What side did you take, Halen or Roth? Van Halen. He's a cop. And the rest is pretty much history. With 12 albums under their belt and the eventual reunion with singer David Lee Roth, oh, yes. the band had a successful North American tour in 2015 and are rumored to be gearing up for another in the near future. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, Van Halen is the 19th best-selling band in United States history, selling 56 million albums in the U.S. alone. Not bad for a kid who immigrated to America fresh off the boat with the family piano in tow. Coming here with approximately $50 and a piano, not being able to speak the language, uh, going through everything uh, to get to where we are. Uh, if that's not an American dream, I don't know what is. I mean, really, only in America is it still possible. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's all about freedom, and you put your nose and tail to it, and uh, just don't stop. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Put your nose and tail to it and just don't stop. By the way, his story is reminiscent of Irving Berlin's. If you remember, two very different kinds of musicians. Irving Berlin did not read music. Neither did Eddie Van Halen. He was self-taught, so is Eddie Van Halen. If you remember, Irving Berlin only played the black keys because his fans and his fingers couldn't play with the white ones. And we learned that, my goodness, Eddie, he couldn't afford the pedals. So that's why he had to learn to bend those strings and get all those sounds out. What a story. What an American story. Eddie Van Halen's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and there's a lot of things wrong in this world but there's no shortage of good friendships strong friendships are what help us navigate the complexities of life that we face along the way here at our American stories we love to celebrate tales of unlikely friendships and by the way we've done any number of them on this show and send yours to us as well unlikely friendships in your life Unlikely friendships in history, and we'll produce them here at Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and send them to us. And here's a story from Sarah on one very unlikely friendship. This is a story about two great men. One, a rock star. The other, a man of the cloth. Both revered as giants in their respective worlds. But their paths had never crossed. 
and eventually it was the power of words that brought them together. We bring you that story, an ironic story, of the poet and the pastor. First, we'll hear from the pastor. But when I was a young person, well, young, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was within walking distance of a range of mountains, and I used, every Saturday I used to um, boil a couple of eggs and get some bacon and, and ride my bike to the slope of these mountains and spend the day um, looking for Indians and uh, looking for arrowheads. And I never found any of that stuff, but it didn't make any difference. I was well-populated with imagination. Eugene Peterson fell in love with language at a very young age. And in his adult life, he would go on to translate the entire Bible. But had you told him that in these early years, he would not have believed you. We moved across town when I was about um, 10 years old. And I had no friends. And I had a, um, a Bible that I purchased with my own money. And uh, I started reading it. And somebody told me that the Psalms were a good thing to read, so I started reading the Psalms. And about a month into that, I realized what they were. And uh, I didn't know the term metaphor, um, but I, I, I realized what metaphors were. So then I was off, and the Psalms were my introduction to poetry. And when I realized that, then all that, well, the, the images, the symbols, and everything started to fit. You know, a metaphor is, is really a remarkable kind of formation because it both means what it says and what it doesn't say. And so those two things come together and it creates an imagination which is active. You're not trying to figure things out, you're trying to enter into what's there. I think it's, well, it's been important for me. I, I would think it'd be important for anybody but to find a few poets that really strike home to you and, uh, and then memorize them. Uh, and you learn to listen to the, the, the dynamics of their language and uh, recognize things that, uh, if you're just looking at the words, um, for me, uh, George Herbert has been one of those poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Mary Oliver, I don't have a lot of them, but I memorize them because then I can, you know, they, the music gets inside my head and I'm, I'm reading poetry without knowing I'm reading poetry. And then that helps with, with the scriptures too. I, you know, I didn't realize when I did the message, I had a, had a congregation of people who didn't read books. So I started translating the Bible in their language not knowing that I, what I was doing. This is the piece of work Eugene is most known for, his translation of The Message, the Bible in contemporary language. But at this point, he was already a wildly prolific writer, authoring over 30 books as poet, pastor, theologian, and scholar. And suddenly, um, they started paying attention to me in a way they never did before. 
But there was someone else outside of his congregation who had been paying attention to him all along. Mr. Peterson, uh, Eugene, um, my name is Bono. I'm the singer with uh, the group U2 and wanted to sort of video message you my thanks and our thanks in the band for this remarkable work you've done. There's been some great translations, some very literary translations, but no translation that I've read that um, speaks to me in my own language. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, take a rest now, won't you? Bye. I never heard of Bono before. And then uh, one of my students um, showed up in class with a copy of the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones? And in it, there was an interview with Bono in which he talked about me and the message. And he used some, you know, slangy language about who I was. And, uh, and I said, who's Bono? And they, they were dumbfounded. I'd never heard of Bono. <laughs> But that's not the circle that I really travel in very much. So that's how I first heard about him. Here's the rest of the story on the origin of their friendship, as told and produced by Fuller Studios at Fuller Seminary. And, uh, and then people started bringing me his music, and I listened to his music, and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to... After a while, I started was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> yes, but the rest of the story is when the, he invited you to come and hang with them for a while, you turned him down. I was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh, you may be the only person alive. <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono, for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> well, eventually they did meet in 2009, after Bono invited Eugene and Jan Peterson to one of his concerts in Dallas, Texas. We were really well cared for, had really good seats. And uh, I'd never seen a mash pit before. That was my introduction to the mash pit. <laughs> Is it a pit? It's a mosh pit. Mosh pit. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can see how uneducated I am in this world. And we had a, it was a three-hour lunch. And uh, we just had a lovely conversation. Uh, it was just very personal, relational. He didn't put me on any kind of a pedestal and I didn't him so we were very natural with each other and when we come back we'll continue with this remarkable story the poet and the pastor and anyone who's familiar with Bono's writing his lyrics and what he's writing about listen to one love carefully is all I can say and so much of the rest of it an Irish Catholic kid trying to make sense of the world especially growing up with Protestants and Catholics blowing each other up but still longing for God and longing for spirit and longing for meaning in his life. When we come back, 
more of this remarkable story, the poet and the pastor, here on Our American Stories. Bono and Eugene Peterson, a tale of an unlikely friendship. It started with Bono's admiration for Eugene's work, and then Eugene found a deep appreciation for the way Bono has so boldly reached millions through his lyrics and his music. The two became fast friends after the Petersons attended Bono's concert in Dallas, and they met again for a second time, this time at the Petersons' own home out in Flathead Lake, Montana where Eugene grew up. They met to catch up as friends and to discuss their shared love for the Psalms. It's here that we pick up the story with Eugene and his wife welcoming Bono to their home. It's so good to have you here. Great to see you. Oh, God bless you. God's blessed you, that's for sure. (laughs) Look where you live. (laughs) This is quite a spot. You know, I just realized never been to Montana. Haven't you really? So many gifts already. <laughs> just 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 since being and here. My father bought the property just towards the end of the Second World War, 1945-46. So then we expanded. We doubled the size of this. Because right. we knew we'd, we'd have a lot of guests. We knew we'd have you. <laughs> Foolishly made room for the Irish. I have to say in the last years, Eugene's writing, Room of the Horses, that's a powerful manual for me. And it includes a lot of incendiary ideas. You know, I, I hadn't really thought of, of Jeremiah as a performance artist. Why do we need art? Why do we need the lyric poetry of the Psalms? Why do we need art? Because the only way we can approach God is, if we're honest, through metaphor, through symbol. So art becomes essential, not decorative. I learned about art. I learned about the prophets. I learned about Jeremiah with that book, and that really changed me. I remember the Psalms from the little Church of Ireland church as a child going. I remember thinking, great words, shame about the tunes. Uh, Except for The Lord is My Shepherd, which was a great tune. I really liked that. This is good. Words and melodies. Ah! They have this rawness, the brutal honesty of 
whether it's David or not, it doesn't matter. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy um, that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. It's that that makes, that sets the psalms apart for me. And, and I often think, gosh, well, why isn't church music more like that? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Is that right? It's beautiful. By translating a psalm for a certain person, just a single person, to try to get them to realize that Praying wasn't being nice before God. I would translate a psalm that I thought fit them. I think I'm doing it as about as close to the Hebrew as I can get it. And, but it's, it's not smooth. It's not nice. It's not pretty. But it's, it's honest. And I think we're trying for honesty, which is very, very hard in our, in our culture. I'm talking about dishonesty, that I find a lot of, in, the, in, in Christian art, a lot of dishonesty. Yeah. Right. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I think it's a shame because you got, these are people who are vulnerable to God in a good way. You know, vulnerable, I mean porous, open. I, I would love if this conversation would inspire people who are writing these beautiful voices and writing these beautiful, say, gospel songs, Write a song about their bad marriage. Write a song about, about how they're, you know, pissed off at the government. Because that's what God wants from you, that truth, the way, the truth. And, and that truthfulness, know the truth, the truth will set you free. It'll blow things apart. Why I, I'm suspicious of Christians is because uh, of this lack of, of realism. And I'd love to see more of that in art and in life and in music. You know, uh, I'm an opera singer, and so I let those feelings go through me and come out. Uh, having feelings is perfectly normal. Let them out. Why do I like the Psalms? David, I like David very much. He danced naked in front of the troops. That's one reason I like him. <laughs> and his missus was not at all happy. It's this abandonment, you know, that, that you've, got to, you've got to get it out. It's important. And dancing, very important. Understanding our, our bodies as well as our minds and our spirits. And the three-personed God, the Trinity, is reflected in our, our body, mind, spirit. And we have to we ignore we really do ignore this. We need to find a way to cuss without cussing. And the imprecatory psalms surely do that. They just lay it out. If we've got to have some way in context, and the context is the whole Bible and the whole Psalter, some way in context to tell people how, how mad we are. Uh, one of Eugene's uh, translations, uh, 
25. Punch the nose. Punch the nose. Is that 35? It's fantastic. And uh, punch the nose of the bullies. God. Um, but I love the idea of you've got to cuss, find a way of cussing without cussing. And you have to give vent to that. I like that. that that's going to stay with me. Bono most certainly gives vent to the angst found in the Psalms. He's written a number of songs that speak directly to the reality of suffering, pain, and evil in the world. But there's one song in particular that sticks out to him. It's called Raised by Wolves, the song. And I try to make it real. Try to bring people to that place because it must have had an effect on me and I want to understand violence. Um, a bombing that I missed in Dublin myself. Um, three car bombs, time to go off at 5.30 on a Friday night in 1974. Any other time I would have been on the street where the bomb went off because I used to travel through the city centre. I'm going to get two buses home from school. And, but there was a bus strike that day and I took a bicycle. And I have no problem with the Old Testament. I don't see God as a violent God, but I think the world is a violent place and it does reflect that. And, and it, it's a terrifying thing into some of the Old Testament, but, but, but it is real. And in a way, I kind of prefer it to the airy fairy stuff where we don't get, re you know, we don't, where we don't get real. There's violence. There's got to be some kind of response. And is it more violence or less? I'm glad we have a crosses in every room in this house. But I, when I look at those, I think, I don't think of decoration. I think of this is the world we live in. And it's a world with a lot of crosses. And I just would like to spend my life doing something about that through scripture, through preaching, through friendship. And now my, you know, my ears are getting shorter and I uh, don't have nearly as many left. But I, I don't want to escape the, escape the violence. Eugene did not avoid the violence and he didn't shy away from tough conversations. The rock star and the pastor remained close friends over the years, even when Eugene grew sick and entered hospice for complications related to heart failure and dementia. In Milan, on October 15th, U2 performed One, a standard in their encore. But on this night, Bono included a dedication near the end of the song and a rare coda not yet heard on the Experience and Innocence tour. Hear us coming, Lord. Hear us call. Hear us knocking, knocking at your door. The dedication was to the ailing Eugene Peterson. Eugene would pass away seven days later, October 22nd, 2018, at age 85. And great work on that, Sarah. And those words of Pastor Robinson, praying isn't about being nice before God. It's about being real, honest. We're trying for honesty, which has hardened our culture. 
and that these two men became fast friends, not a surprise to me, maybe a surprise to others, but they've both been thinking about writing about the same things for a very long time, what I'd call real Christianity, and the search for that. The story of the poet and the pastor, the story of Eugene Robinson and Bono, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston, and climbing its tower on April 5th, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land, and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, Good night and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead, in their night encampment on the hill, 
wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light the fate of a nation was riding that night, and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides and under the alders that skirt its edge now soft on the sand now loud on the ledge is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides it was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into medford town he heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down it was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare, as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed, who at the bridge would be first to fall, who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball. You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, 
through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading. And what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day. Gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861. Still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about sports here on the show. And today we have the story of the swimmer Gertrude Ederle. She was born to German immigrant parents in New York on October 23, 1905. She was the first woman in history to swim the English Channel, and that's a swim of 21 miles. Today we have Ann Turgeson, the Director of Education at the National Women's History Museum, telling her story. She was known as the Queen of the Waves, so if that gives you any indication of um, how celebrated she was. She loved swimming, and this was actually an acceptable sport for women at a time when um, it wasn't encouraged for women to be athletic. So if you think about her, her parents, they're products of the Victorian era. So the Victorians uh, were very prim and proper, and they, they were the ones who wore the buttons all the way up to the neck, and you know, women didn't cut their hair, and the ideal feminine beauty was small and petite and with the cinched waist and the corsets, and, and um, she was really a hero against all odds. She came from an era herself, her generation was more of the, the flapper era, and the flappers rebelled against everything Victorian, so they, they cut their hair short, and, and they wore the short dresses, and, and they did away with corsets and anything cinched, and they really had this love affair with the, the athletic outdoors woman, and they loved the idea of women being strong and athletic. So this is, again, just a, a rebelling against the, that previous generation that told women that they couldn't be athletic because it desexed them or that they, they shouldn't participate in sports because, you know, especially during those childbearing years, it was considered foolhardy. So very, very much a different era um, that her parents came from. And there were still these lingering attitudes, even as sports like tennis and swimming became more socially acceptable for women to participate in because of sort of the country club um, climate. You go to a country club, there were women participating in tennis and swimming, and, and it was considered very fashionable for women to participate in those sports. She took to swimming um, right away. She was an avid swimmer, and she did turn professional in 1925. And she was swimming at the Women's Swimming Association in New York when she turned professional. And this was sort of the hub of competitive swimming in the United States at the time. 
1925, uh, the association decided that they were going to sponsor two women swimmers to attempt to swim the English Channel. And unfortunately, her, her teammate had to drop out at the last minute due to an injury. So uh, Trudy went ahead to France and began training on her on her own. Her coach's name was Jabez Wolf, and, and it was always thought that maybe he did not want her to succeed. He himself, it should be noted, had attempted to swim the English Channel 22 times before he actually began training um, Trudy. She started training with him and made her first attempt uh, to swim the English Channel in 1925, and she was unsuccessful. And a lot of things went down during that swim that kind of uh, weren't so weren't so kosher. Her um, her coach kept trying to, to slow her down. Now she was a naturally fast swimmer, but he, throughout her training and throughout the swim itself, he was trying to slow her down, saying she couldn't sustain that pace, that no woman could sustain that pace on, on such a long swim. And at one point, she needed to kind of slow down and take a rest. So she allowed herself to just float there for a minute, face down in the water, and she was catching her breath and, and just relaxing her muscles for, for a minute. Her coach panicked and, and sent a, another swimmer into the water to have her drug out and she said she started saying no no I, I'm, I'm not I'm not drowning I, I'm just resting and her coach ordered her out of the water anyway and this was a very uh, bitter conflict between she and her coach and she ended up not training with him again and but she did go back to France in, in 1926 to start training this time with a new coach Bill Burgess who was who was very supportive and had no doubt that a woman can could make this swim, let alone Gertie. And so she attempted the, the channel again. She was successful. She swam the 35 miles in 14 hours, 31 minutes. This actually beat out the previously held record by a man um, by a solid one hour, 59 minutes. And so nearly two hours, she shaved off the previous record. Um, this swim didn't come at at a you know it wasn't easy. She actually lost part of her hearing during that swim. Her hearing wasn't that great. She had suffered from measles as a child, and and her hearing had been impacted by that and had started to decline. But being in the cold water that long actually impacted her hearing further. There was also drama around this swim in that uh, she had secured a couple of uh, sponsorships from newspapers, American newspapers, one being the New York Daily News and the other being the Chicago Tribune. And she was promised a bonus if they got the exclusive rights to her, her swim and got to interview her first um, when she was successful. These reporters hired a tugboat and um, her father and one of her sisters was on the board the tugboat and was following her on her swim and then reporters from the New York Daily News and the Chicago Tribune were on board the boat and to protect their exclusivity to her story they didn't allow any other reporters on the boat and there were uh, European reporters who were very much angered by this and they were bitter so they hired their own tugboat and were also following her on the swim and they intentionally kept getting closer and closer to her um, quite perilously during the swim and she was very angered by that so it wasn't without its own drama and then English papers were saying that because the tugboats were, were actually uh, so close to her during the swim it may have made her swim that much easier because they were blocking the wind 
No, that was actually true. So she became a, a celebrated celebrated hero after after that. Um, again, against the odds, there were so many people saying a woman couldn't do this, and she has so many people trying to um, make sure she didn't succeed. But but she did, and she overcame those um, sort of those gender norms that previously held women back long before Title IX was ever passed. Um, she went on to break another record in 1925, actually even before she swam the channel. That was her swim from Battery Park to Sandy Hook. That was a 22-mile um, swim that she um, she managed in record time, 7 hours, 11 minutes. And it, that actually, uh, that record stood for 81 years before another swimmer a woman actually beat her record. She, um, from 1921 to 1925, she held 29 national and world amateur swimming records. And uh, she was a leading exponent of the eight beat crawl, which was a crawl she used to, um, with a stroke, I should say, that she used to, to cross the, the English Channel. And this is, this is a stroke that involves eight kicks for each full arm stroke. She was one of the, the best-known American sport um, personages of the, of the 20s and um, was greatly celebrated after her swim across the channel. She came back to a, a ticker, ticker tape parade. There are lots of photos you can find online of, uh, with the vast crowds and, and everyone knew her name. She was a celebrated hero and um, had really helped to dispel that idea that women can't do X. So, like I said, she was sort of this un unlikely hero, but at the same time, when she did break that record, it was amazing and she was properly celebrated and feted upon her return. Unfortunately, in 1933, she, um, she suffered a serious back injury. She <laughs> fell down a, a flight of stairs, twisted her spine, never fully recovered from that. She recovered enough that uh, six years later, she was able to appear in in the New York World's Fair, but um, it, it still plagued her for the rest of her life. And in the meantime, her hearing was continuing to decline. She continued to be uh, feted and celebrated for the rest of her life because of, of, of all the numerous records that she broke and because she was an Olympic hero and she was the first woman to, to swim the English Channel. So she was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 65. And in 1980, she was inducted to the Women's Sports Hall of Fame. The hearing and the back injury, like I said, it continued to plague her all her life and she lived a long, healthy life. She was 97 when she passed away. These were things that continued to plague her to the to the point that in the 40s, she was nearly entirely deaf. But again, this is not something that slowed her down. She turned around and she became a swimming instructor for, for deaf children. So um, again, just a hero in, in so many different ways. And great job on that, Faith. And you've been listening to Lori Ann Turgeson, and she's the Director of Education at the National Women's History Museum, telling the story of Gertrude Ederly and what a story it is and was. Battery Park to Sandy Hook. For anybody familiar with New York, uh, the Battery Park is at the very base of Lower Manhattan, and out from Battery Park you can see the Statue of Liberty. And dimly, if you're sitting up at the new World Trade Center, you can see Sandy Hook. And that's in New Jersey, the northernmost beach in New Jersey. And that is one heck of a haul and some rough waters. A great story, a truly remarkable one. Gertrude Ederly's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an 8th grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player, and he enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, The third guy in this tableau was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. 
He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, You guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive? So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach, but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive? That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, 
The monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories. Michael Powers' story. James Bradley's story and his father's. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we've been following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 34th feature on what happened during their celebration of the new year in 1806. New Year's Day dates back to the Roman calendar. So the Romans gave us essentially the calendar that we have. It's called the Julian calendar. We're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. It was later refined and updated as the Gregorian calendar. But essentially the Romans figured this out. They consulted Egyptian and other astronomers and they nailed it. And so June is for the goddess Juno, and July is for Julius Caesar, and August is for Augustus Caesar, and so on and so forth. And many of the terms are Latin terms. November, meaning the ninth month, uh, October the eighth month, December the tenth month. And so if you're going to have a year, you know, the Earth travels in the solar system, and the periodicity is what we call the year, getting from the same point in the orbit to the same point in the orbit, 365 days, just slightly off of that, but close. That's why we have leap days and now leap seconds. But essentially, a year is 365 days. That's not an arbitrary number. That's a solar number. And the Romans figured this out. And then when they did, they realized, well, you have to end one year and start another year. And so they chose a date. It's actually in March. 
and we've moved it back to January 1st over the course of time. But it's the demarcation between the year that's over and the year that's starting. So now we have academic calendars and we have the fiscal calendars and a whole range of others. The Islamic world has its calendar, the Jewish world has its calendar, etc., etc. But the calendar of the West, or most of the West, is the Gregorian adjustment of the Julian calendar. And the date that was eventually settled upon as the day of demarcation comes on the first day of January, which is appropriate because the Roman god Janus uh, was two-faced. It, it has a face looking forward and a face looking backward. So it's a perfect mythological symbol of the end of the year. You look back over your 1805, you look forward to your 1806, or you look back on your 2018 and look forward to your 2019. So New Year's had been settled for a long time by the time the United States was born in 1776. So along comes Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson is a deist and a skeptic, and he also believes very strongly in a wall of separation between church and state. So he decides he's only going to have two presidential receptions per annum while he serves as president. One of them is going to be the 4th of July, naturally enough. That's the date of our national birth. And the second one is going to be January 1st, not Christmas, not Easter, not Labor Day, he chooses January 1st because it is mathematical. There's no religious attachment to it. It doesn't belong to this sect or that church or this tradition. It's a perfectly mathematical demarcation between one year and the next, and so nobody can try to claim it from a religious point of view. It's really just a date on the calendar. And for Jefferson, the deist and the scientist and the mathematician, that's perfect, because now he can have a reception, but it doesn't suggest that he is favoring the Methodists over the Presbyterians or the Christians over the Muslims. So that's that date, the 4th of July, is obvious in this regard. And so they're aware of this. They're, it's amazing that Lewis and Clark are able to keep the calendar. A few of the journal entries are off, but they manage to self-correct them in the course of the expedition. Often in an expedition like this, you just completely lose track of the time. You know, Robinson Crusoe says that after a couple of years, he basically lost track of time and just was using an arbitrary system, but it no longer squared in any way with the Julian or the Gregorian calendars. The expedition is keeping pretty tight records in this regard. Except for the captain, Meriwether Lewis, who hadn't ridden for three months. He goes silent, including the successful arrival at the shores of the Pacific, which I actually think is a dereliction of duty. Jefferson told Lewis to keep an accurate journal account of the expedition, and particularly the implication was to note the great moments when you find the confluence of the Missouri and the Yellowstone, when you come to the Great Falls, when you reach the source of the Missouri, when you cross the Bitterroot Mountains, when you reach the fabled Columbia and when you reach the Pacific Ocean. This is not optional. This is not like keeping a diary on your trip to London. This is an essential report, government document on a critical, geopolitically important military reconnaissance mission and something that belongs to the long and extraordinary history of exploration. 
so Lewis being silent for that period is not only hard to understand, it's a dereliction of duty. Lewis is subject to some sort of depression. He's clearly exhausted mentally, physically, and spiritually. He must have brooded over this. I'm, he had probably two thoughts. First of all, I'm, I'm not doing what Jefferson asked me to do here, even though I've got Clark keeping a daily diary. But secondly, when I come to write the book, which I know I'm going to have to write, it's going to be a lot harder if I don't have a journal. It would be easy enough to write this book if I'd written 500 words a day every day. I'm not even going to be able to tell which Indian was which and which stream was which and where the confluences are and what was that huge landmark we passed and all these other really important data points and impressions. I'm going to have to now crib this from Clark and from the other diarists and from the maps. And it would just be so much better in every possible way if I had it. So he must have felt guilt. And so on January 1st, 1806, he does what people do on, on New Year's. He, he writes a New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions, you know, you don't read about them in Jefferson's world in the way that you read about them today, where every year all the newspapers and television shows say, well, it's New Year's, what are your resolutions going to be? And, and they prove that most people don't keep their resolutions. The gym memberships skyrocket in January and are plummeting back down by the 1st of March. But in, in Jefferson's time, this wasn't as big a deal, the New Year's resolution. But Lewis clearly feels that a new year is a new opportunity and a new chance for him to step up. And his New Year's resolution appears to be, the past is gone and cannot be recalled. I dashed from me the gloomy thought. But now, I have to get serious here. I can make a lot of this up. We've got all this enforced leisure here at Fort Clatsop. I'll write up a bunch of the natural history stuff. Uh, I'll try to do some reflecting on what's happened so far. And I'll establish a habit which maybe will carry me through the rest of the journey. And I can, I can never undo what's done, but I can catch up to the extent that that's possible. After all, we will be going through the same geography, more or less. So he starts again. On January 1st, he has one of his most famous passages in which he says, This morning, I was awoke at an early hour by the discharge of a volley of small arms, which were fired by our party in front of our quarters. He says, the only mark we had in our power to pay this celebrated day, our repast of this day, though better than that of Christmas, consisted principally of our anticipation of the first day of January next year. January 1807. When in the bosom of our friends we hope to participate fully in the mirth and the hilarity of the occasion. And so Lewis is saying, yeah, we got through it. But next year I'm going to be in Jefferson's White House on January 1st. He's going to have French wine. He's going to have champagne. He's going to have sweetmeats and magnificent desserts, what we would call heavy hors d'oeuvres. He's going to bring out the world's largest cheese that's been there for a few years, and we're going to play with that a little bit. Uh, next year, I'm going to have the right kind of Christmas and New Year's back in civilization. 
this year, all we can say is that we made the best of the situation that we found ourselves in. That passage by Lewis is one of the great passages, and it shows not only uh, the deprivation that they endured, but it also shows how homesick Meriwether Lewis is and how ready he is to get back. And great job, as always, to Alex and to Joey. And we've been listening to Clay Jenkinson. And it is unimaginable how homesick those guys must have been. And thanks to Clay for sharing that part of the memoir with us. And Clay is the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical we proceeded on. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. Lewis and Clark, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories.